0: All right, and we are live. Well, happy Monday, everyone, and happy Tuesday to the rest of the world who's on the other side oh, of yeah. the yeah. So it Traveled is. in time. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Hardship, the Now of Leadership and is This is the show where we dare to talk about topics on a role level and challenge the old paradigm of leadership into becoming heartship, heartship, not to be mistaken for hot shit. A lot of people have told me that heartship, yeah, sure. where we lead from the heart, but the sole purpose of increasing our biggest ROI, which is our people. Let's it be the workplace, homes, communities, or nation. You lead anywhere where the, there are people waiting to have equity. So I'm your host Mila Dufour and this is my co-host Anneliese Ponsky. How are you Annelie?
1: Not too bad. I was you know thinking a little bit about this podcast and it reminded me of the time that I took that Harvard implicit test. So I was a little mm-hmm. excited to hear what you guys have to say too. So just reviewing beforehand but overall I was up really late last night <laughs> reading I'm in, you know, I have three different books going on for like two different book clubs and then (laughs) everything else. So I've been, Mm -hmm.
0: just the books have been just coming in, swaggings. That's awesome. And as we are speaking, one of our committed viewers typed in hot shit. Thank you, Chris. I believe that you tuned in last week as well. So thank you for being (laughs) fan. We love you. Yes. Do not forget to subscribe to this YouTube channel. Do not forget to like us on twitter like us on apple podcast and on youtube of course so like us comment us give us a review whatever that you would like to do today we are touching on a topic that is often shied away from or touched on a very surface level and that is unconscious bias conscious bias and conscious discrimination it's like three in wow it's like having ordering a hot dog and then you get all three relishes on top Mm -hmm. so that's what we are talking about to spark this conversation further we have invited Chris Lin a very good friend of ours and who's an advocate so I want to bring him on but before I bring him on I want to introduce you he is a dad he's a concerned citizen and a people advocate so Let's bring him on, Chris Lynn. Welcome to Hotshot. Hello.
2: Thank you for having me back on.
1: Yeah, we're glad to have you back. I thought we had a really good discussion last time, and it's nice. I'm excited to hear what you have to say.
0: Yeah, me too. Do you like the introduction that I gave you?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad that you uh, put dad first, so.
0: Yes, yeah, because a lot of people believe that, you know, you are like identity markers, right? Oh, my God, my hair. Okay, identity markers. That's fine. I'm having a fever. So I'm just going to do this. A lot of people feel that as identity markers, they feel like their title in a company comes first, but they don't realize you as a person, you are serving your home first, yourself and your home. So that's why I was like, Dad. Constant citizen and people advocate. That you get. Yeah, it.
1: no, I think it's really just proves that like we can impact the people closest to us, you know, really strongly. So I usually think of those family markers too when I think of like identifiers, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. That's well, what like
1: best daughter ever. That's what I think.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I always <also laughs> ask my mom, "Am I your favorite daughter?" <laughs> and she was like, no. <laughs> so today's topic as we said you know it's un- we're going to be talking about unconscious bias, conscious bias, and conscious discrimination so it is really fantastic to have the both of you right <clears throat> Chris, you approach things from uh, the workplace that's why i call you people enabler and honestly you approach things from a political science perspective and just the whole of economy perspective something happened to my voice but anyway and I approach it from a culture perspective so it's really beautiful on this podcast we bring multiple perspectives to come together and explore this topic so to just kind of like start off the conversation when it comes to unconscious bias let's touch on unconscious bias what it means and then move on to conscious bias and then conscious discrimination so I want to open the floor to both of you. What does unconscious bias mean to you? What other facets that comes to your mind when we talk about this topic?
2: Yeah, I think unconscious bias really f- is highlighting, you know, when you might be making a decision or you might be thinking something that, uh, you're unaware of, right? It's unconscious. It's something that's influencing, um, your decision or your thought process. Um, based on your past experiences and your upbringing, um, you know, biases are not uh, genetic, right? They're not something that is, uh, if you look at nature versus nurture, it's absolutely something that's nurtured. It's something that's taught. So um, all of those previous experiences that we've had uh, growing up, up until our current point have influenced our thought process and are influenced our actions. So uh, unconscious bias is in my, in my mind, really f- about not knowing what those things are, um, not being aware of them, not knowing what has influenced our thoughts and our behaviors.
1: Yeah, I just think of it as really, just like Chris said, just learned behaviors. Um, it could be from images that you've seen in the media. It could be, you know, things, you know, specific words that your parents might use your friends might use and I think it's just really I think of like people's gut reaction like I think of like the implicit test that I took you know years ago it's just like okay when you see these two images like what exactly are you thinking what's the first thing that comes to mind so I think it's definitely learned but the nice thing about it being learned is that it can definitely be changed <laughs> through some effort
0: yeah, that's such an important thing, all right? Uh, both of you mentioned about how it's learned, right? Either from the media or from our environment, and that's such an important point to focus on. Sometimes when we when we watch The Simpsons, I, I want I always like using Simpsons as an example. Not that I hate Simpsons, but it's a great example how um, racial ethnicity stereotypes are implemented within that. I don't even know if you call it a cartoon, but a lot of the things are adopted from those, right? So how South Asians are portrayed in, in that, or how East Asians are portrayed within that cartoon, or even like older age man, what's his name? The one who says Giggity, what's his name? I can't even remember,
2: <laughs> right? I think oh, you're mixing up cartoons there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I oh yes, that's the guy, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was like, I've never, I haven't heard that
0: character. <laughs> <laughs> but that's such an important thing, right? Sometimes we learn from what is being portrayed on cartoons or media, <clears throat> different types of program, right? And then it becomes, we learn that it, it becomes not more for us to to portray that kind of behavior or to treat people of that sort or to assume that all people from those kind of countries or those kind of jobs display the same kind of behavior. Now, I want to explore how unconscious bias becomes conscious bias. Can either one of you give me an example? How does unconscious bias becomes a behavior? Let's it be in our schools, communities, nation, or workplace.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, conscious bias is being aware of what your biases are and, and, um, seeing it play out. Right. Uh, for example, um, you know, I, for myself, uh, I have my own biases, right? We all do like, let's first get that out of the way. Like, Everyone has their, like, let's, let's just clear that (laughs) everyone has their own biases it's okay to admit that. It's okay to know that you have them, right? We're human. We have these things. Um, So, you know, for example, my own bias is um, actually one of the most glaring ones, I think, is that I grew up, I'll I'll explain it first, is I grew up in mostly an all-white community. And so I actually am biased a, a bit towards my own ethnicity which is i think okay. interesting right and i and i've found you know through talking with people and reading a lot of articles and books that this is actually kind of normal where you have chinese americans especially first generations really trying to figure out what your our identities are and i think that we we go through a lot of this uh, a lot of people go through this so trying to fit into the American, quote, unquote, American culture, trying to fit into the white culture, and then being embarrassed about my own ethnicity, right? Being embarrassed about being Chinese. And so uh, didn't really think about that growing up. But then, you know, as an adult, really becoming conscious of that and really having these thoughts. And, you know, I might go to, um, you know, like, a Chinese market or a, you know, a Chinese restaurant or something. And I might just in my mind think like, oh my gosh, like that's so embarrassing. And like recognizing that that's a conscious bias is me being like, oh, right. Like I'm aware of that. And so that's what I think is, is, uh, you know, what a conscious bias is is just being aware of what your thoughts are and um, what your actions might be uh, perhaps after the fact.
1: Yeah, I think that too. I think it is a lot of learning has to go involved. And I think, yeah, you have to be really living your truth and really admitting it. Like, yes, I do have a bias. I think a lot of people are ashamed, but if you keep living in that shame, there's no way to grow and there's no way to acknowledge, you know, the possible consequences of having that attitude. Um, What I've seen a lot, especially like kind of being in a lot of like social justice, like advocacy circles. um, I did a lot of like, student like work and like the university level and really just seeing people being really open about how bias has affected them and like having these conversations and it takes like once people start hearing more and more like kind of the negative effects like they start to like realize like oh these are attitudes that i might have these are stereotypes that like i believe or i've you know thought about you know and thought that they were true or whatever um and I think it just really is just taking those moments, having people being vulnerable, just being honest about it. Um, you know, because I think we, I mean, we all do, we all can, you know, pinpoint what we're worried about or like what biases we have. And I think it's just one, just being really honest about it and then taking the time to learn why you feel that way. What in your life has led you to be here?
2: Yeah. And I think that honestly, you bring up a good point is uh, being very being honest with yourself. And that's the crux, I think, of leadership, right? Being self-aware and being honest and humble enough to identify what your thoughts and actions are and realizing, okay, I need to move from here to there. This is how I want to improve. And I think that is, again, uh, what we need to all work on as leaders and, and great leaders do that. Great leaders accept that they are not done learning, they're not done improving, and we can always be better.
0: I love that you mentioned that, and great leaders are conscious about embracing that, you know, uh, and that's such a first step, right? but owning up to yes i do not know yes i have my biases yes i'm still learning and that's what real leadership is about it's not about having this false sense of ego and having this narrative of i've got everything to get there or, I know everything. How can you know everything? If you know everything, you would be leading the whole world. You'd be solving a lot of challenges. And I like that both of you highlighted that very important point, you know, like really acknowledging that I do have biases. I'm taking time to learn about those biases. And as leaders, it's so important to constantly challenge those biases because take for example if you are a leader let it be you whether you're in a workplace or in a community even in a religious congregation even in education systems or a nation right if you have your own biases and i've seen this play out so many times and it is happening around the world as well with global leaders when you have your own biases you segregate people you prevent you gatekeep opportunities from happening and you you spew this narrative as certain people from certain country are bad or they can't speak English, or they are lazy, or they are drug uh, traffickers. You know, different kind of narratives come about because of your own limited knowledge and the biases you have learned from the telly. And I want to tap into into how this unconscious, you know, we just touched on unconscious bias becomes conscious bias as to, okay, this is all my biases. But I also want to touch on how conscious biases can come into conscious discrimination and and i want to hear both of your thoughts i wanted to hear on from a political scientist perspective and and chris from a workplace perspective
2: you
1: know i think it's just one thing that like really comes to mind is just policy decisions um who are we leaving out in certain policies um what are like the unintended effects of policies. And one thing that is really glaring to me is um, housing in the United States. Um, When we first started expanding houses, um, we gave loans, you know, the FHA does, the VA does. So it's meant to like help people build capital, you know, acquire things that they can give to generations, other generations, right? But it's who do we exclude from this policy? We start redlining. We start saying that certain people can't get loans. And the people who couldn't get loans were black and brown people. So you have this bias that you think that black and brown people aren't, you know, they can't do things. They're dirty. You know, you don't want them in their neighborhood. You just don't like them. And then that becomes really consequential. So we see now we're still seeing the effects of that today, right? Like we know we can, you know, see that different places have been you know, impacted by other policy practices that originated from maybe this housing practice. So the consequences last for a really long time. And it's just, who do you exclude in policy? Who do you exclude in government? Whose interests are represented by the representatives? And I think you'll find a lot of times that certain communities are neglected. And that's when those really, the biases become discrimination.
2: I think if I can touch, like, add more on that. I saw um, a report on the Payroll Protection Plan that is out right now with for COVID nineteen for small businesses, and there is a staggering statistic. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it is substantial enough that it is an issue that people of color are not people of color who own businesses are not getting these loans it's something like 80 or 90% are white. Mm-hmm. It's, it's in, insane in my mind. And so you have to start looking at, okay, well, why is this happening? And it's very, it, you know, we don't have a direct reason, but I think we can extrapolate a little bit and really <laughs> see that, you know, are these banks, do they have unconscious bias built into their system? What are the factors that go into qualifying small business loans uh, and their practices? And you have to look at the individuals. You have to look at the culture within the organizations of, do we look at everyone equally, regardless of their background, their uh, you know, regardless of their past, regardless of their color, um, regardless of their ethnicity? And we really need to look at those things. And that's where businesses get in trouble. Uh, I'll use Starbucks as an example, right? We, we know the example, what was it now two years ago in mm-hmm. Philadelphia where the store manager uh, called the cops for on two black men who were just hanging out in their store. I uh, that. Sorry. Oh, I, I recall that. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, you know, I'll, I'll speak it from my own experience. Um, i Worked with for Starbucks as a manager as well. I worked downtown San Francisco. A lot of sketchy people, a lot of homeless people, and the moment those people came into the store, everyone's guards were up, right? And those are again, those are biases that we have. We're just like we assume that because of our past experience that you know one person might have stolen from us, or one person was very rude or smelly or whatever that that's how we treat everyone. And that is the issue that we need to address is why do we have this bias? Why do we create these policies? Why do we create these actions as an organization that might exclude people or put a certain group down? And that's when we get into trouble. Yeah. Oh, Oh, go
1: ahead, Annalie. Oh, no. Yeah, it just really made me think, right, that, like, it's not just the policy in place, right, it's the practice. So it's those in tandem. That's what either makes, like, discrimination, like, even worse than it already is, or, like, you know, that's where we really cement it, is just how we act, how we behave.
0: I I love that, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the policies result, uh, everything has got a dominant effect, right? One action results to another action. And Chris, you you shared the story of Starbucks and you being a manager in Starbucks too. You know, you saw what was happening. And that just highlights from a culture science perspective, right? Regardless whether it's happening in small businesses or from a political stance or whether it's, it's happening at the workplace or in communities, everything transfers. Whatever is happening in the workplace happens at home, happens in our communities, happens in schools, happens wherever, socially as well, it's transferable. It's like this learned discrimination becomes transferable preventing equity for people. And it's so sad that, you know, the minute someone who looks homeless comes into the shop, everyone has got their guard on, but prevents or or disregards that common core humanity aspect as to understand why, how did they get to this spot to begin with? Why are they in this position? Why are they homeless? How did they become homeless, right? Because homelessness can happen to anyone, especially now in this pandemic, it is highlighting 30 million people have lost their jobs, right? A lot of people can't afford to pay their rents, can't afford to pay their mortgages. And they are going to be displaced from their homes, and it's easy to become homeless. So we need to rethink about these gaps as to when we have our unconscious bodies that becomes conscious bodies and then converts into conscious discrimination, we ourselves are contributing to to capitalize the the challenge or the problem, right? Even as concerned citizens or you know, just as citizens, just by treating them or saying, oh, they are homeless, or just by the narrative, or oh, he smells, or you know, don't go near them, don't give them food, don't don't give them this. Those are some ways that conscious discrimination manifests—the way that we narrate our stories or the way that we narrate their stories—and it ha- like. It happens anywhere, everywhere, and I like that both of you highlighted that it's a systemic issue, right? Like policies are written like that. Um, But my next question is: How can we consciously? I I want to touch on at a community grassroots level. How can we consciously prevent ourselves from discriminating someone consciously, and and switching that? discrimination into solution?
2: I think that's the $60,000 question. Is that by using that phrase right? I I always think it should be like the $1 million million question. Anyway, um, that's something that is the toughest part. That is the hardest part in this whole thing is that, A, we have to admit something to ourselves that we might not like to admit, right? We probably all have biases and thoughts that are embarrassing once we realize them. That's one. And then second, then we actually have to put a very dedicated effort into fixing that and unlearning that behavior. That is the toughest part. And Mila, you hit the nail on the head is how do we treat each individual as their own person and not lump them into a group. And that's just as human behavior, that's what we do is we look for patterns and we see, oh, okay, that's similar to that other thing that I saw or I've heard of. So I'm just gonna put that person in that group because it's easier for our brains to comprehend. Really, we need to start having those conversations and start talking about them and really getting to know them and building those relationships in order for us to er slowly eradicate this bias that we have. So it's, it's going to be a lot of work. I mean, it's something that is in my mind, it's not going to happen overnight. We're so used to, especially in our current generations. And, you know, as we uh, go more and more into technology, we are again, we're always looking for that instant gratification. what's that quick fix? I'm the same way. I'm you know my wife will say this. she's like, I don't need a quick fix. like I need you to like we need to work on it slowly and I'm like, no, I need a solution now. <laughs> but, but there's no quick solution. This is something that's going to take you know in my mind generations and we have but we have to start somewhere. And we have to start moving in that direction and start admitting to ourselves that this is an issue and we have to confront it head on. I've worked in organizations that have said, no, that's, you know, diversity and inclusion isn't a priority for us. And it's like, why isn't it, you know, you, you look at your own, you know, these organizations, they look at their own demographics and they just look at it from, um, an affirmative action standpoint, do we have enough diversity within the organization, but they will not move forward into being a more inclusive environment. So we really need to start transforming that practice and saying, why is it not a priority? It should always be a priority and we need to not have diversity, equity, and inclusion as a separate program. It needs to be built into the foundation and the core culture of the organization so every time we have any sort of conversation, we need to be thinking about these things. When you're going into a meeting, is there anyone who is not represented? Is there, are we being inclusive? Are we getting everyone's voice? Are we hearing feedback from everyone that, need, that this might affect? Are we providing a platform and the solution? Is it equitable for every group that this is going to be affecting either directly or indirectly? So we have to just start having those conversations and asking ourselves some of these basic questions before we move forward.
0: I love that you highlighted diversity and inclusion is not in an isolated team, and it needs to be integrated. I say preach it's, 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 on. You, you know, I want to stand up and clap, but I'm feeling a little bit dizzy, so I'm going to sit down. But I'm the it. it's diversity and inclusion needs to be integrated into every single thing. You know, if if you say it's not important, it's going to be an isolated team in, in the basement, 10 floors below garage level, then I think that that person needs to be removed from the leadership position or needs to rethink as to why they are leaders, right? Because when we talk about diversity, it's about every single thing, bringing everyone to the room. People often talk about, you know, bring everyone to the table, you know, create your own space at the table. But like tables, forget about tables. Tables are built to facilitate 12 people, 16 people. I say bring it to the room, bring it to an open room. Fit as many people inside the room, not enough get outdoors you know how many people can you fit outdoors I think like we need to bring people into environments who do not look like us sound like us think like us do like us and disagree with us and diversity can only be possible if we start accepting people because a lot of let's be organizations communities even religious practices right even a nation, It's like everyone is trying to build a space of inclusion and belonging. But belonging is only from a lens of how do I want you to belong in a space that I am creating for selected, like exclusive people who will have the privilege. So these people come into a space of belonging that I want to create for selective people and they're like, oh, Do you fit them all? Okay, then you belong. You do not fit them all? Sorry, goodbye. And I think this is the point that a lot of communities, let's it be if you're a leader in a nation, leader in a community, religious congregations, schools. Yes, it happens in schools as well, in, in workplace. If you are not willing to accept the other person as they are at the stage that they are in, diversity can never be possible. Belonging can be never possible. Inclusion can never be possible. I think people need to really realize and and have a wake-up call that we need to start accepting people and creating those environments where we can build solutions. And solutions does not need to be a schematic or one singular cookie cutter that fits for all. Oh, Anneli, you're oh. muted.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think it's about learning. And I think you might really like this too, Mila, is just like communication. Um, Just really learning how other people speak, how they express themselves. Because I think a lot of time, especially when working with groups, or having like worked in political science, or like education, I've seen a lot of times is like people communicate differently. And that's when people will just like cease discussions. If somebody um, acts like a stereotype. Like I've seen this a lot of times with someone, especially with like black women, right? The angry black woman like trope, right? Like that whole stereotype. And it's just like people will automatically just like stop discussion. Like wait, so because somebody you know acts like spirited or like you know communicates differently than you would expect to or what you think is right, then we should automatically like, ostracize someone. Like it shouldn't be like that. It takes like other people you know, have to learn that, like, communities are different, people learn differently, people, I mean, it's just not everyone's the same, right? There's not one prototype, like how to be. And if it was, we would never learn anything. And it'd be super boring. And we'd have totally like no news perspectives. So I think it's um, acknowledging right in that moment, like being intentional with like, what you're saying, what you're doing, and being able to like, review yourselves, like, did I like, you know like in a meeting like did i act in a way that like it inhibited somebody else did i act in a way that would make someone else feel othered so i think it's just knowing you know that people are different and differences are okay
0: i love that you mentioned about communication styles right or where people label women black women as angry black women or i have been labeled as angry colored person angry angry brown person because i have voiced out certain things and this is why people are labeled as angry or perceived as angry this happens a lot in the workplace or even in media right when people are having discussions and this goes back to privilege privilege in a form of conscious bias turning into conscious discrimination right when you have Uh, teams in in workplaces and like dominant culture Wherever the dominant culture is let it be white dominant culture or when I used to be in Southeast Asia the dominant culture were the Chinese and the Japanese and the Malays and Indians or people who were darker Asians were considered lesser so it transfers really well into the United States it happens in, in Britain as well Right, that the different groups within different groups of Asian community as well. And I've seen this. And it was so interesting. I was in meetings where three managers were at that, and they were all white female managers and they were speaking, right? And there are lots of colored people in the room, and colored women kept on asking questions, and the white managers kept on like dismissing them, saying, oh, what's your name? Sorry. And they'll call out their names differently, and that's an aggression, right? That's conscious discrimination based on how you look like. And, and then the ladies just kind of like ignore it. The second time, they they asked questions again, and then they were dismissed again. And again, it's like those colored women like, spoke up again. And then the third or the fourth time, they – spoke passionately they were not yet this and this is how they spoke and they called them out saying please do not call me this caught me despite the fact I told you what's my name and you're not answering my question and now we are saying that I'm raising my voice what should I be doing in order to catch your attention or to claim my voice again and they were labeled as angry. And this happened in university as well. I had a professor and I was taking a conflict analysis resolution class. And I was questioning the professor because I felt that he was being sexist and racist. And to a point when I said, no, we, each of us got a chance to pick the character that we wanted to reenact in a conflict uh, scenario. And I said, I wanted to play the male portion and he was like no no and he kept on like disregarding me disregarding me disregarding me and then he looked at me you can play the black crow and that was such a demeaning way of showing power gender and class in an education system where he used conscious bias against me to become conscious discrimination and when i finally spoke up i was labeled as the angry colored person so and this is what you know organizations whatever you know whether you are in business whether you're in schools need to realize how many times are you going to disregard someone else's voice just because they are not of the same melanin as you are they don't have the same melanin as you do or they do not sound like you or they do not have the same accent as you or they have got different hair, right? There can only be X number of times that you can do that to them until they retaliate, retaliate in the form of disagreement or sharing their voice. So I think we really need to like rethink what we are doing as dominant cultures to trigger that behaviour of other people. Like we we just are so quick to label them or, or you're angry. You do not know how to behave. You're loud.
2: And I think that that speaks to those individuals not knowing how, A, not knowing that they may have those biases, Mm -hmm. and B, not having a true relationship with someone either like that in the past or in in the present, and their lack of willingness to get to know the other person. And so with that, I think that that's where allyship really becomes important, right? And I personally actually don't like using the word allyship. I actually like saying partner because we actually need to partner with these individuals. If I'm a partner to you know, uh, someone else of color or for women or for what, whatever, um, I need to work with them to help amplify their voice and bring them into the conversation and get them recognized. Uh, I think allyship doesn't really do that. It almost allyship almost feels like it's like, Hey, I'm like helping you out versus like partnering with you. But, you know, if we look at this where, you know, where we do see this lack of representation and these biases play out, that's where we do see governmental policies start to step in, right? And that's where I think that that actually causes more angst amongst those of privilege, because then they feel like they're being forced, like before they were being pressured to be inclusive and equitable within their their workspaces or within their communities, Now they're being forced and that creates even more conflict. However, those are, that's the right thing to do. You look here in California, we have the crown act, which has eliminated, um, hairstyles as a, uh, as a characteristic for employees, right? So now people can wear their natural hair. Great. Fantastic. You look at, uh, women now need to be 50% of boards great. That's a great thing, right? That's an equitable movement. However, on the other side of the coin, now we're finding that there's a lot of individuals who say this is, they feel like they're being, things are being taken away from them. And we need to continue to work at that because we, that's the last step, right? Like that's a, um, that is a last resort is to have governmental policies put in place. So we really need to focus on moving ourselves and our teams and our mindsets to be more inclusive and making sure that we are practicing these, practicing, I've lost my train of thought, but really, you know, trying to focus on um, making sure that we, we create cultures that are inclusive and that do have um, policies and practices and cultures in place that, promote others and can that we can help others be who they need to be.
1: Yeah, I really like that. I really like when you said the differences between like allyship and partnerships, because to me, it's like being an ally seems kind of passive in a way. And it's like when you're a partner, you're active and like breaking down these structures. And I really do just like the whole thing is that like culture, policy, practice, like they're not all going to happen at the exact same time. So it's like sometimes culture pushes policy sometimes you know like all like the practice changes like the culture what have you so I think it's important to look that like each one of these things especially like policy is that one's like a slow burn right like to make like societal shifts like paradigm shifts that takes a lot of work so I think it's just what can we do in the moment to like make impact some t- potentially on like the micro level you know, what can we do to like show that an equitable society, like society or like culture can happen in these smaller places. And then let's take it like bigger and bigger each time. So, yeah, but I really did just like kind of appreciate looking at like allyship and partnership, totally different.
0: Right. And I'm with both of you too. And I love the approach of partnership as well as, as opposed to allyship. Right. And this is, this is coming from a cultural perspective right? Because I've lived in so many different places, countries, and even within the United States or around the world, and there's a vast difference between allyship and partnership. And I say this because of my experiences as an immigrant, uh, as a person of colour, and as a woman, right? And this was really, I got an epiphany, especially when I had this conversation with this group of women oh I I think I've shared this before and I was in Seattle and it's a very liberal state right and I disagree I disagree to go for the is it the pussy hat march I disagree saying that you know I don't want to go for the march but I believe in finding resolution differently I because I was just trying to understand what the, the march half like what was the and call to action i wanted to see what are we trying to change and i said what's the resolution who's going to go speak with the officials right and what are we trying to achieve and to that i was told you are an immigrant you're going to get kicked out of this country if you're not with us and that's when it really ha- occurred to me just because someone is an ally let it be an ally who uses identity markers, right, I'm gay, I am your ally, I am a, an immigrant, I'm your ally, it does not mean that they are truly supportive of you, it's just because if you disagree with them, you're no longer an ally, you become an enemy, and the difference between partnership is I've had so many disagreements with people, right, disagreements in such a say that I didn't agree with, with you on this, but how can we find common ground to work with, and I've met so many people who are Republicans or Democrats or you know, from the gay community or from the immigrant community where they come and say, okay, we don't agree on this, but let's find a common goal, put our egos aside and create that partnership. And that's such a difference and there's such an importance in finding that partnership. Not, but Just because someone is an ally by identity, Marcus, does not mean that they'll become your partner or sponsor for a common effort or common goal to bring equity and i really love that and i want to transition into this and chris you mentioned about things being taken away from us right when policies and cultures are implemented right to benefit the misrepresented and you feel like the other side of the coin where a bunch of people feel like okay this is taken away from me and i want to have a better understanding on this right i want to understand from your point of view and from political sense point of view on lee like can you give me like what does this really mean things are being taken away from us so we understand from both sides of the coin.
2: yeah one analogy that comes to mind is let's use pie, right? Let's, let's pretend like we have a nice cherry pie, apple pie, whatever kind of pie you want. And if we have, if we're looking at it from, let's say salary, right, equal pay. Previously, we were looking at what, like an 80, like a 20% more for men than women at minimum, right? So if you were to split that pie, it's, going to be more for the men and less for the women. Now, if you look at this whole movement to equal pay and rightfully so, right, is now it feels the men feel like they're getting less pie where really you're just making it more equitable. So I think that that's part of the conversation we also need to have is, yes, these decisions are the correct decisions to make how does that affect the people that might have had that privilege before and how do we talk to those people to help them understand that this is the right decision because we don't un- we don't realize privilege until someone points it out to us we just think that's our way of life and if it's being if we're all of a sudden having something taken away we hold that against the people that it is benefiting. So we need to look at that, right? If you look at some of the things here in our country, here in America, you look at the immigrant uh, and undocumented immigrant system, and the common argument from people of privilege is you're giving money and investing all of this money and benefits into people who don't even live here. And that's because they feel like in their minds, money should be going to them versus going to someone else. So how do we talk to those individuals to help them see that this is actually a benefit for everyone? And that's where we need to start that conversation.
1: It kind of reminds me of one of the books that was really influential to me during my own, like, Graduate school was. It was a book about like just different political movements, and what people when they kind of thought about like when do I have to take action or how like what propels people to actually like do something and to acknowledge that there are differences and inequalities in society. And for a lot of people, there's like two things going on. Is right is like people are afraid of like changes if they're already in a comfortable place, you know, and then they people really do care a lot when they're displaced so if you kind of once like they realize that like their state of like their current affairs or like just their day-to-day once you like displace them from that then that's when they become super realized as to like what's going on but i think you just i think a big thing is is that like some people who are comfortable they're fearful of what society will look like like beyond like their current state you know like it's scary like you know you're used to like things like being the way they are now and you know you might acknowledge like yeah you know things are bad for other people but like there's a potential that it can get better or like whatever narrative like is being fed but I think it's just some people are afraid to give up their position um they're afraid to give up the comforts and for some people to realize they have to be like completely
0: displaced. I like that you highlighted at that point um you know like we don't understand privilege until someone highlights it to us, and and especially when resources are lost, right? When I say resources are lost, it, it, you know, like Chris, you highlight when policies are being made, you know, like at a high level, like the hair policies, and and honestly, you mentioned about you know when someone truly realizes, hey, I'm not in a position to make decisions that benefit me or people who look like me or people I root for right then they realize oh shit you know then who's 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 going to make these decisions and also it also plays a point as to when they realize that they don't have the power anymore I think they actually come to a realization that the kind of conscious bias and conscious discrimination that they have been you know, powered on or behaving on or executing on is being transferred to someone else who does not look like them. And their constant is, am I going to be treated differently now where they are going to take advantage of their power and treat me differently? And I think this is something that we need to truly, truly highlight. When you lose power, there is a fear sense, right? There's a fear Oh. I was, I was treating them in that way. Are they going to treat me like that now? And that's a real fear that some people have because it truly like wakes people up saying that, hey, you, you know, I treated you like this. Please don't treat me like that. So they, they now have that power switch position, right? It, it's almost like, okay, you're no longer the president. I'm the president. So just because you gave me lesser... Um, equity and you put me in really low neighborhood I'm going to put you in those neighborhoods but also to realize that not everyone who has had power before or are displaced will treat you the same way but also makes people realize when they are part of a dominant culture and they have had the privilege it also makes them realize that oh this is how I've been treating people and that epiphany as to, should I stop treating people like this or or should I become a better person? You know, I think it really makes people think, let's be out of fear or whatever it is. But my question is, but the real question is, when they do get displaced and they, when they do get placed again, are they going to adopt the same kind of mindset? Um, that's the bigger question that we all do not know from a cultural perspective, right? Because sometimes... Situations shape the way that we become, situations and adversity shape the way that we become a, a leader in whatever that we do. At the same time, not all p- people learn the same way. So, this transitions for me to ask um, a question as to the, the impacts, right? That impacts of all these three biases um, from from unconscious bias, it transfers into conscious bias, into conscious discrimination. And it impacts, it impacts <clears throat> on different levels of how equity is provided in the form of opportunities. It prevents collaboration and segregation continues. Let it be in the workplace, let it be in our communities, religious congregations, or in a larger scale nations. So and you mentioned, you know, how do we fix it? And both of you shared some tips on how do we fix it. Any last words on a very grassroots level as to how can each of us contribute to dissolving conscious discrimination and conscious bias? Let it be if we see someone being mistreated, even in the supermarket, in the car park, in the workplace, or in a community like rallying or even a voting area.
2: Any last tips? I think it's about learning about your own behaviors, talking to others, and getting feedback. Um, you know, are and being uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be very uncomfortable and very difficult to a ask and b hear some of the things that you might be hearing. And when you hear those things, we have to really work to reserve our emo keep our emotions in check because we will probably get defensive we'll probably get angry and so we need to acknowledge that going into this and that it's going to be incredibly difficult and we're going to hear some things we are not going to like so have those conversations constantly learn more about other cultures constantly learn about other people continue building connections and relationships with people that are not like you. We can tell and we know when people are not like us. Reach out to them and just you know, don't don't reach out to them saying like, "Hey, like, you know, I'm trying to be more diverse. Like, I want you in my group." And it's like, "No, <laughs> no, no, don't do that." But just Get to know people. Talk to people. You know, I mean, I, you know, I actually even had a uh, an, an incredibly tense conversation with my own family members this last week. Um, but even just getting to learn their perspectives and just getting to understand why they think what they think, why are they doing what they are doing, and just experiencing more, learning more about people, and continuing to just be better. And let's just, you know, all work together and be to be better as a whole.
1: Yeah, to me, it's just acting with intention. Um, And being able to kind of think before you speak or a lot of the times or just being reflective in the situations. I mean, there's been a few times where I've been like, you know, mid sentence and like, oh, did not come out the way I intended it to be. And, you know, even if it's just like, hey, like, okay, now I can say it. So um, I think it's just about like, how could I have said things better? How could I, you know, leaving the conversations? Is there something that I said that could have made like somebody feel a type of way? And like making sure that like, next time you have to be better, or like, you know, you have to grow. So I think it's just, I think a lot of times just kind of thinking before you speak and you know, making sure that, you know, kind of being cognizant of, like, even your own body language and stuff, like, are you being closed off? Are you, you know, turning towards, like, specific people? Are you, like, you know, you know, arms and, like, shoulders open a little bit more? So, I think it's just, like, being, like, okay, like, in the moments, in those moments, and as they move on, like, am I being the person that that is, like, working towards having, like, a good environment, so.
0: I love it. I love what both of you share. And to add to that, um, I like to say that, you know, a culture is only possible when we all come together, right? A culture is only possible when we all embrace diversity and accept everyone as they are who they are to both of your points you know have those difficult conversations like take the time to understand why do you say the things that you say why do you think the way that you think right and to really have that culture evolution it's only possible um, when we when conscious bias is and conscious discrimination is challenged right when stereotypes are no longer stereotypes right when you have a stereotype coming into your head don't confirm don't ask questions or engage in conversation or steer the conversation to confirm your own biases right it's i've had so many people do that to me where when they look at me they're like india pakistan and i'll tell them no i'm not a country you know are you asking me where i'm from are you asking me (laughs) if i'm a certain country right and and then they will dig and dig and ask like where are your ancestors from? And I was like, Oh, my ancestors are nowhere from Pakistan or India. And then they're like, No, you're brown skin. You're brown sk- skin. And then they'll make com- make remarks like, I love curry. Do you eat curry? And those are all conscious discrimination where you want to fit someone into your own narrative or your own picture of how they should be, where sh- they should be from. And I've had conversations with people who create conversations in the form, like to your point, ally, right? Chris, you mentioned in the form of or illusion of they are my ally. But the conversation goes on like this, like, oh, for example, I am from Iran. or my background is Iran and Portuguese and that. And you don't need to be afraid. Don't say that in a patronizing manner. There's a difference between ally. You're trying to create an ally. To be patronising or are you trying to be a partner to understand someone? If you truly want to understand someone, let them speak. Let them share at their own timeline where they are from. And if they say, I'm from the United States, I'm an American, you accept that. Because someone's identity is not framed from the image that you see in the telly or from the narratives that you gather in the office or water cooler. Uh, top, whatever that you call it, in the office that takes place, or in your know, smoke, smoking designated environment, or in the supermarket with your cashier. Because even though someone looks like you, our culture at home is so variant from their neighbors. So that's what I leave with you all today. Conscious barriers, unconscious bias, and conscious discrimination are all learned ways, and we have to continuously beat those narratives. let it be whether we learnt it from the telly or from our family or from the playground or from the watercolor talks or in the office. Thank you again Chris for coming on the show. It was such a pleasure having you.
2: Yeah thank you again. I, I always enjoy our conversations.
1: Yeah no they're great so thank you. Thank you everyone. You too me.